Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you and wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm saddened that we forgot to do this um, in our first service, but it is Memorial Day weekend, a, a weekend in which we honor and thank our veterans. So I would like to just ask those of you who have served as, uh, in the, or currently in the military, would you just stand for a moment? We want to, just want to say thank you to all of our veterans. So go ahead and stand up. sure to thank a veteran. As many of you know, sometimes they, they sort of get mistreated and misunderstood. And um, So anyway, welcome those of you that are visiting with us. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> I do want to call attention, remind you that though we're not doing announcements, that we are giving out what's called the current, which talks about many of the things that are coming up. And I do want to emphasize that this Saturday, there's a very important training meeting coming up. So those of you who do any form of leading, whether it's small groups or um, growth groups or Bible studies, we really encourage you to come to learn more about how to shepherd. It's on this Saturday from 8 to 12. There's a registration and sign-up sheet online, even if you're not ready to do that, but you just want to get some training. It'll be well done. Pastor John has spent an enormous amount of time really doing some in-depth training for this. As you know, that's part of the model we're, we're really trying to enforce. As our church is growing, as we multiply, we have to divide into smaller groups where people can learn how to grow together and help each other grow. So, with that in mind, today I'm going to do <clears throat> the second message on marriage and family. And one of the things that's really interesting is as you read the Bible, <clears throat> it was God's idea for marriage and family. He created Adam and Eve. It was his desire for them to have children and one of the things that I found interesting as I was studying for this is that there are two aspects of marriage and family that are a great illustration of God's relationships. God's a relational God. The Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another in this mysterious oneness. But when God created us for His glory, it involved His desire to have a relationship with us. And so there are two ways that God uses family as an illustration of that. On an individual level, when you become a Christian, God calls you his child. He becomes your father in a special way, and you become his child. John 1.12 says, when you receive Christ, he gives you authority to be a child of God. But the other way is, that's more of an individual level. On the corporate level, what God does is he illustrates his relationship with all of his people through marriage. So in the Old Testament, he would call himself the husband, and the nation of Israel became his bride. In Ezekiel chapter 16, you can read a, a, a story of how God found Israel in the wilderness and washed her and cleansed her and dressed her in fine linen and took her to himself as his bride and committed himself to her forever. As that spills over into the New Testament, Jesus took over that role of being the bridegroom, and then the church began to be illustrated as the bride of Christ. So it's interesting, the passage that we're looking at this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, while Paul is going to talk about marriage and parenting and children's relationship, it's all in the context of theology. So the ethics of the family really come out of the ethics of the theology of our relationship to God. And it's really neat how this lengthy passage in Ephesians 5 lays that out. So 
Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll, we'll look at it. Father, thank you for your word. We want to have ears to hear. We want to listen because the word is what powerfully changes us through the spirit. So Father, even if people here are not married, were married, lost their spouse, are divorced, don't want to be married, in a difficult marriage, our young people, all of us, Lord, need to listen. Many are parents here. Even if we're not, there are things that we can learn about your love for us that will change our lives. So help us to learn from the Bible today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that's interesting about the book of Ephesians is that the Bible seems to always teach Christianity in this fashion. You need to learn first what God has done for you. Somehow we put the cart before the horse. We're like, okay, being a Christian means don't do this, don't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. That's not Christianity. Christianity is all about God coming to us in our mess and saying, in spite of your sin, I love you. I came to die for you. I came to forgive you. I came to heal you. I came to bless you. I came to indwell you. I came to claim you for myself, and I am all for you. You are now forgiven. You are my children. You are my followers. I'm going to care for you and bring you to me in glory one day. Then, he says, in light of that, in light of this glorious gospel, here's how he wants us to live. And so the Christian life is always a response. It's a thank you note. It's saying to God, Lord, if you bought me with your blood and I belong to you now, how should I treat my family? And so the ethics of family are framed within our response to the gospel. And so if you'll start with me in verses 15 through 21, this is a really important framework that sets the stage for what we're going to say about marriage. It's interesting, as commentaries interact with this passage on marriage, they often call these family table codes. And this is not something that wasn't going on in the early Greco-Roman world. In other words, even the, the Greeks and Romans had family table codes. This is what a family should look like. Now, their motivations were very different. There were some similarities and some differences. For example, in the Greek and Roman world, women were considered inferior and particularly intellectually not as capable as men. And so their codes had similarities but distinct differences. In Christianity, women are not to be treated as inferiors but equal fellow members of the grace of God. In addition, their concern was that the family was the structure for Roman society, and so you need a good family because that's the heart of our society. While that's true, that's not the main reason why God focuses on family. It's because we're to bring glory to him and to live the way he wants us to live. So as, as you think about this table code, it's not just God saying, all right, wives, here's how you, all right, husbands, all right, parents, all right, children. It's in this context of God's love for us as a church. He says, look, I bought you. And I realize that many of you have not come from a Christian home. I realize that many of you are very dysfunctional. That's, that's why we call the church a hospital. But God's saying, I want to impose my will into your lives, and I will help you to do this. So let's look in verse 15, where Paul, as he's unfolding how Christians are to live, he begins by saying, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, as wise men. In other words, we are not just to 
fly through life without examining ourselves and thinking from time to time, what's important to me? What am I focusing on? It's not just put out the next fire or, as many would say, just chill, man. Just chill. Just pura vida. Go to Costa Rica. Just enjoy life. Happiness. No. As a Christian, I'm to think about everything in this framework. Paul says, look, make the most of your time. So we all have 168 hours in the week, right? But we're Christians. Those hours are stewardships that God has entrusted to us, and we're going to be out of here soon. So he says, think about what you do with your time. How much time do you spend on Facebook, television, recreation, work? How much time do you spend with your family? And the reason we should make the most of our time, he says, because the days are evil. And you're like, wait a minute. I grew up on happy days. What do you mean the days are evil? Well, he's not saying that God doesn't want us to enjoy life. God's all about enjoying life. The Bible says he's given us all things to be gratefully enjoyed. But at the same time, when the Bible says the days are evil, we're reminded that we live in an age, we live in a world that's in opposition and rebellion to God. Does that make sense? So the Bible says we are lights shining in a crooked and dark and perverse world. Now, that needs to be drilled into my head because I don't naturally think that way. You just get caught up, you're watching television, news, going to work, listening to people talk, and you sort of get sucked into it. So Paul goes, look, People are lost. People are away from God. The days are evil. So think about your life. Now, what should I think about? Look at verse 17. So then, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, think about that. A careful walk, a self-reflective Christian walk says, I should be thinking regularly about the will of God for my life. I should be doing ongoing assessment. Would God be pleased with this? Would this be part of the Lord's will? What might God want me to be doing or not doing? How might I make changes in my life to, to reflect what God has done for me? Now, I want you to think about the screensaver of your mind. Does the idea of God's will come across your mind as you make decisions? For example, when you're put in a scenario where maybe it would be convenient to lie, where it might be better to, to, to cover something up, or where as long as you're not caught, it's not a big deal. See, Christians, that should be totally foreign to us. The Christian life is about learning what is pleasing to the Lord. Jesus said, one day many people will say to me at Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, and he'll go, I'm sorry, I don't know you. He said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, only those who do the will of my Father. Now, what does he mean by that? Christians believe in the Lord Jesus and have received him and are forgiven. And then naturally, they want to learn what the will of the Lord is. So when you're making decisions, you say, hey, I'm going to marry an unbeliever. You go, oh, well, that's not God's will. Well, that doesn't matter to me. Well, when you start thinking in that way, I'm leaving my wife. I'm tired of her. Well, that's not God's will. See, the will of the Lord is revealed for us in Scripture. And as forgiven followers, we need to be thinking about that and learning what's pleasing to the Lord. So Paul gives us a specific. He goes, here's an example of how I don't want you to waste your time. Don't get drunk with wine. Now, God's not opposed to alcohol. 
And when people say the wine in the Bible is non-alcoholic, I go, is it me? If it's non-alcoholic, why would it say do not get drunk with wine? Because drunkenness is a sin, and he says it's dissipation, which the Greek word there means it's wild, uncontrolled living. It's the same word that's used of the prodigal son when, when he went off and he just lived this out-of-control life. Now, to many young people, that's appealing. Can't wait to go to college where I can party. Yeah, right? God's gone, no. While that might have some fun, that's a dead end. And you're going to hit a brick wall, and that's going to mess your life up. But instead, God says, be filled with the Spirit. It's really important that we understand what he means here. All Christians are indwelled by the Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You don't have to feel him come in or have some special experience in tongues. Romans 8 verse 9 says, If any man doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. But the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, is a commandment. Okay? And what it means is that I am surrendering to the will of God in my life as the Holy Spirit empowers and strengthens and guides and leads me through the scriptures. So I want you to think about this. All Christians are indwelled by the Spirit. Not all Christians are always filled with the Spirit. If we were always filled with the Spirit, he wouldn't command us. He would say, praise the Lord, we're all filled with the Spirit. So the idea is a careful Christian walk says, okay, I want to find out what God's will is, and I know that I need to surrender and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill and lead and strengthen me and enable me to do what God wants me to do. So make that a regular part of your prayer time with the Lord. Father, may the Holy Spirit work in my life. Fill me with power. Fill me with the desire to obey you. Fill me with Christian thoughts and scripture. Bring to my mind, direct me so that I can bear fruit. Now, some of the marks of that will be, number one, will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, here's an interesting analogy. You might have a very shy friend who goes into the bar and after too many beers is up on the bar singing karaoke, ah, right? He would never, ever, ever, ever do anything like that were he not under the influence of alcohol. In the same way, Christians who are not filled with the Spirit, it is unlikely that they will have this song in their heart where they will be gladly giving thanks for all things to God the Father through Jesus Christ, singing and teaching one another and enjoying the Lord. So this is where even Christian music is a significant part of the Christian experience. In other words, you should have the Christian radio on. You should be listening to and learning good Christian music. When we're singing these songs, I hope that during the week, you're singing them in your hearts to the Lord. I think you are because a number of you I've pulled up beside you at the red light. And though your window was up, I saw you going like this. And so I'm assuming that that's what you're doing. But I figured I probably should ask, okay? This is not abnormal. That's, not, that's normal. That's spirit-filled Christianity. So if you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's all that emotional stuff. No, there's something wrong with you, right? If you're like, ah, oh, I don't do that stuff. Well, ask God. Put a song in my heart. Lord, well, I don't feel like singing. 
oh, I'm sorry, it's about you, right? So I wonder if God goes, ah, I didn't get much out of your worship. It's not about what we get out of it. We're learning to be filled with the Spirit and saying, God, help me to be thinking and talking about the Scriptures, and this is the day the Lord has made. That's not weird. That's biblical. And only God can change us to be like that. Now, verse 21 becomes very, very important in this section because it sets the stage for these table codes. Look at verse 21. He goes, and be subject to one another in the fear or reverence of Christ. So here he's going to introduce a very important word, be subject. The Greek word here, hupotasso, means to submit to someone, to willingly put yourself under someone else's authority. Okay? Now, people today have done what I call twist the scriptures. There are many people who take that verse and say, therefore, in Christianity, we're all in mutually submissive relationships to one another. There is no headship. There is no authority. We all submit to one another. In fact, there's a book called Submission is for Husbands Too, right? And you go, yeah. And I go, no. <laughs> That's not what he means here. He's simply introducing the concept that within the Christian family, there will be roles. And each of us needs to learn our role and learn how to submit to the person that God has put over us. For example, I certainly hope that you as a parent don't submit to your children. So when you tell the children it's time to go to bed at 8 o'clock and they go, uh, no, it's time for you to go to bed at 8 o'clock. I hope that you don't say, well, we're all supposed to be subject to one another. Be sure to turn the lights off. I'm coming to your house and rebuking you. So, so please understand that this is not setting a framework that says there's no roles and orders of authority. Okay, He's simply introducing the family table code. So Paul's going to begin with wives. Now, I understand that this is unpopular, that what he's going to say about submission here is considered to be bigoted, it's considered to be tyrannical. It's considered to be demeaning to women and encourage men's domineering personalities. That is not God's intention. However, if you'll look with me in verse 22, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Okay? It doesn't say because he deserves it. And so briefly, we'll talk about a couple things. How should she do it? He says, first of all, do it as to the Lord. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean your husband's the Lord Jesus. It's as unto the Lord. It's in reverence to Christ. You submit to your husband not because he deserves it or because he has earned this status, but you're doing it because you love Jesus and he died for you and this is his plan. It's a voluntary submission. And wives, I sympathize that there will be times that you have to think deeply and wrestle and come to grips that there will be points where this is going to be hard because you may hands down be more competent than your husband. You may have greater financial savvy. You may be brighter. You may have more common sense. You may have had better experience in your past. But perhaps I could illustrate this even in the work setting. All of us have been in situations where our supervisor, we felt might not be 
as capable as we are. The boss's moron nephew, I have no idea why he's in charge because he doesn't know anything about the business. Nevertheless, it is not your role to buck and kick and scream and defy and overthrow him or you will be between jobs again. <laughs> so in the same way, as forgiven followers, there are times you'll have different ideas and you might say, God, why would I need to submit to him? And God's saying, just duck so I can hit him. I'll take care of it. <laughs> but trust me. So that's, that's how, as to the word. Now why, he says, not because he's worthy, but because as a wife, you have an opportunity, he says, to exemplify the corporate aspect of Christ's love for the church. So let's take a look, because he continues by saying this. He says, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself is the savior of the body. Now, let's think about that for a moment. What? What? Why should wives submit to their husbands, especially if he hasn't earned it? Well, because it's an illustration of Christ's headship for the church. And notice he adds this, Christ is the savior of the body. Now, if you know Christ, you know he's your savior. And he saved us individually, he saved us as a group. Now, it's a lot easier to submit to a savior, Someone who has rescued and delivered and helped me. And so I think what Paul's doing is he's setting the table to say, guys, I'm coming to you next. And you need to understand that you need to follow Christ's model. So he says, as the church is subject to Christ, so also ought wives to be subject to their husbands in a few things. Oh, wait. In everything? You mean if he says, go get me my tea? Well, first of all, if that's how your husband treats you, and he's very disrespectful, and he's very harsh, and he's very demeaning and demanding, if he calls himself a Christian, and you say, hey, Pastor Tom said that you really shouldn't be speaking to me this way. If he continues in that fashion, that's why we have a church, so we can speak into one another's lives. But at the same time, this does not say, well, unless he loves me, I'm not showing him respect. Respect is earned. That's nonsense. What if I said, husbands, you should love your wife when she earns it? You throw me out of my ear, right? So God's saying, wives, be subject to your husbands in everything. Of course, not if he asks you to disobey God. And men, you're a moron if you don't consult your wife and consider your wife as you make decisions. Nevertheless, God says, I want you to adopt this attitude because you can exemplify Christ and you can exemplify to a lost world what it means to be in submission to the Lord Jesus. Now, with that in mind, this isn't going to stifle or hinder your growth. He's going to hold me back from being all that I can. No, God's going to bless you. And God can change your spouse. And God's intention is to bring a blessing to you and to use you as a testimony. Now, having said that, he spends the next eight verses talking to husbands. So let's talk about husbands. Christian husbands are to love their wives. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. That's a commandment. That's a verb. 
It's a commitment of the will. It's not about feel gushy, sweaty palms and quivers in the liver. Love is active. Love is sacrificial. Please don't come to me and say, I'm not in love. I'll say, please stop talking. Because when you stood up for your vows, you did not say, I solemnly swear, as long as I'm in love, to love you. So, frankly, there will be times when we're all not in love. That's really not the issue. The issue is, are you and I going to love? God doesn't even ask you to marry who you love. He asks you to love who you marry. And love is sacrificial. Love is something, you don't have to feel it. You don't have to take the love dare. Do what the Bible says. Pray to God to help you to be kind, patient, unselfish, and committing to give yourself over to serve your wife. So, what Paul's going to do is he's going to go off on theology now and talk about Christ's love. And I love this because it sort of takes us back to this. All right, let's not get bogged down in the details of man and woman. Let's think of the big picture. Christ's love and he's going to do it in an interesting way. I never saw this before. He's going to look at Christ's love in the past, the future, and the present. And then he's going to say, so in light of these things, husbands, love your wife. So let's talk first about Christ's love for the church in the past. He says, Christ loved the church, in verse 25, and gave himself up for her. Now, frequently when the Bible talks about the death of Christ, it uses that phrase, he gave himself. Sometimes when we hear phrases like, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, we picture Jesus going, I'm not going down there. Why did I draw the wrong straw? Don't make me do this, Dad. Ouch, ouch. No. Jesus gave himself because he loved us. He was in complete control of his arrest and crucifixion. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. And so in the past, Christ's love was displayed for you and me as lost sinners in that he went up to that cross because he thought about you and me. How much do you love me, Jesus? He says, this much. I gave myself on the cross. And don't downplay that. Don't add anything to that. You don't need anything but the finished work of Christ to be forgiven. That's how much he loved you. He died for you. But he died in the past so that he could do certain things. Number one, so that he could sanctify her. Now, that word means to set apart, to single out and devote it to yourself. So both individually and corporately, Christ, when he hung on that cross, it was so he could take you out of the group and say, I want you, and you will now be mine forever. And so he, he bought us so that we could be set apart for him. This is the same Greek word sanctified that's translated saints. You don't have to be a good Christian to be sanctified. You are sanctified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, every Christian has already been sanctified. So the day you were saved, God took you and he set you apart and he says, you're mine now and I love you. Now, how he did that was having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, this is a metaphor. The washing of water is a symbol of our sins being forgiven. And the idea would be something like this. In that time, they had what they called a prenuptial wedding bath. And the wife would take this special bath, and then she would put on all of her finest gowns and um, 
jewelry and perfumes and so forth. And, and there was a, a symbolism of setting her apart. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 16, God says, I found you in the wilderness, and I washed you from your filth, and I clothed you in glorious garments. So what we're thinking about here is, hey, Jesus loved me so much that he not only died for me, but he took me and he washed me. I am completely forgiven, not just of my past, not just of my present, even of my future. Now, that's what you need to keep reminding yourself. The devil will tell you you're just a filthy sinner. Why argue with him? That's true, except I'm washed. I'm forgiven. Don't talk to me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you liars, thieves, homosexuals, adulterers, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You've been set apart. So that's how God wants to view yourself. Not some filthy sinner who he puts up with, but a forgiven, blood-bought, set-apart, bright and clean, sin-soul-washed child of God. And he did it by the water of the word. And so if that's how he views me because of what he did in the past, then that's how I should view me. Not how I feel about myself or others feel about me, but Christ loved me that much. But that was in the past. In the future, he has a great wedding in mind that he might present to himself the church. There will be a day when Christ returns, and God uses this phrase, that he will present the church to himself. The doors will open. The audience will stand up. And the beautiful bride, Revelation 21 and 22, will suddenly appear, and that's us. And she will be there in all of her glory. This word glory is used in the Gospels of king's fine clothing. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Airbrushing. You look at these pictures and you go, wow! Look at that, look at that woman's face. It's perfect! Does anybody have perfect skin without a single dimple, blemish, spot, wrinkle? When we think of someone with perfect porcelain skin, and you go, but God, is it me? Because I got all kinds of spots and wrinkles. And he's not talking here about my physical body. He's talking about me as a person. I still got a lot of stains and wrinkles he's working out, right? So let's just say this. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a glorious upgrade, a spiritual transformation in which God is going to take me with all my rags and all my bags and all of my stuff that I still struggle with. And he goes, bam, when I present you to myself, you will be holy and blameless without wrinkle or without spot. And I'm going, whoa, is that hard to believe? <laughs> yeah. But it's also hard to believe that Christ died and rose again, right? So don't believe what the devil and your world's telling you about yourself. This is what God says about your past. You're washed. You're mine. This is what he says about your future. I'm going to bring you before me, and you are going to be completely blameless and clean. I'm going to change you so, so completely that you won't find a spot or wrinkle. But then he says, but in the present, and this is cool too, in the very present, look at verse 28. He says, so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now here's the phrase, just as Christ 
does the church. Now that's really cool to think about. Jesus is a really good husband. And he's a really good parent to each Christian. Every day, Jesus is concerned that he wants to nourish you and cherish you. Now the word nourish has the idea of feeding and caring for. And then the word cherish literally is used of the affections of a, of a mother for her infant. It's even used in other Greek of a baby bird being cherished by its mother, kept warm. So this is cool. My Jesus every day wants to nourish me, cherish me, warm me, have a relationship with me, feed me, listen to me, care for me, comfort me, correct me. This is the Jesus who died and rose again, not just to say, now, knock it off, but to be in this intimate relationship with me. And think about how he nourishes and cherishes the church. Some people are starving spiritually because they don't go to church. That's part of how he nourishes the church, is he brings you into a community. He pours out the gifts of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, he's given these gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints until we all grow together. And that's why we beg you and plead with you and exhort you to get into community relationships. Get into a group of other Christians where you can experience the hands and feet and care and nurture of Jesus through others and through his word and through his spirit. And so, guys, as I think about, well, if that's what he's doing for the church, is that how I view my relationship with my wife? Do I care about her well-being, her happiness, her future, her needs, her spiritual condition? If Jesus does that for his church, then the least I can do is look to my soulmate of, with whom I'm one and say, I want to pour into her by the help of the Holy Spirit in the same way Christ pours into me. So Paul winds back around. He says, okay, so with that in mind, let's go to verse 31. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will be one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, when God illustrates the church in the New Testament, he uses three primary metaphors. A building, a body, and a bride. But when he refers to the church as his body, there's this beautiful mystery here that somehow our relationship with Christ is so connected, it's like a head and body. ISIS ain't going to be beheading the church. No, 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 no. Nobody's going to cut the church off from Christ's headship. We are vitally a part of Christ. We are his body. We are one with him. And somehow in a marriage relationship, we're a little bit of a picture of that one relationship. So if, if you're not respecting your husband, if you're not loving your wife, you know what you're doing? You're slapping yourself because you're one. So Paul says, nevertheless, let each individual see to it that he loves his wife. And men, if you can walk away from this sermon and go, I don't need to make any changes, we need to talk. Because if you don't think you need to make any changes, then I would suggest that you humbly say to your wife, is there any way that I might be able to improve in the way that I'm expressing love to you? And wives, if you walk away from this sermon going, I got this, 
I'd call my husband Lord, just like Sarah called Abraham Lord. And every day I say, my Lord, what will it be today? <laughs> then I want you to talk to my wife. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just teasing. All right, so we all can grow in this. Some of you are going, oh, I already heard this. I don't care if you heard it. What are you doing? The Bible is not just about information. It's about transformation. It's about obedience. And some of you need to stop sitting here thinking, boy, am I glad my spouse is here in this. This isn't about your spouse. This is about you. And you can't be responsible for how someone else acts, only for how you react and what God wants you to do. And there's no promise here that God says, here's the secret. If you do this, they'll do that. While I love the video series Love and Respect, and I think it's got some great principles because it calls husbands to love their wives and it helps men to understand their wives' needs. And while respect is an enormous thing, wives, your husbands want to be respected. Don't make them earn it. The thing I don't like about that series is that it ultimately grounds the motivation and because this is how you'll get your needs met. Don't step on my air hose and then you'll get your needs met. That's not necessarily wrong, but that's not the goal. My goal isn't to love my wife and so she'll treat me with respect. I want to love my wife because that's what Christ did for me. And go, girls, God's asking you to respect and treat your husband with honor and submit to him, not so he'll meet your needs, but because we're in the Lord and this honors and glorifies Christ. And we can only pray that God will work in all of us together. That's why prayer for marriages and parenting should be a huge thing as a part of the church. But let's move briefly then to children and parents. Now again, one sermon on marriage and parenting and children, and we're going to have this figured out? I don't think so. But we need to be exhorted and challenged. Some of you need to go back and go, be careful how you walk. If your marriage is not significantly important to you, then maybe you're being foolish. You need to start submitting to the Holy Spirit and growing again and connecting and saying, boy, I need to work on this. All right, children, you will not escape without some instruction. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ah, you don't understand. My parents don't get it. They're not Christians. They're fools. They're morons. They talk about how they had to walk uphill both ways. I'm tired of that. <laughs> this is right. You don't obey your parents because they got it all figured out. It's right. It's proper. It's what God expects. And there's a benefit here. He says... Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, I realize, children, that you think your parents had you to serve you. You think that we just wanted little slaves around, so we're like, go do this and go do that. But when we demand that you obey us, it is for your well-being. It is so that you will understand that this is how God has designed the world, that if you cannot be in submission to those in authority with you, your life is going to probably be destroyed. And so as we're teaching our children to obey, you do it because it's right. You do it as unto the Lord. And young people, I get it. Your parents might have silly opinions that you don't agree with. But God doesn't say, well, obey your parents in those things that you agree with. Now, how then do we as parents enforce this obedience that God is calling us to hold our children to? Well, notice briefly, he says, number one, 
Don't provoke your children to anger. Now, the word fathers, John MacArthur points out that that Greek word can occasionally be translated parents. So parents have a, both parents have a role in this, okay? But number one, don't provoke your children to anger. Too many parents that are just so harsh. I saw a guy in the grocery store kick his son and say, because I told you and you do what I say. I'm big and you're little. You know, this whole idea of ruling over our kids with a harshness, that's a bad idea. That's a dead end. We are to be gentle but firm trainers and educators. We're not called to be their friend, and they may not understand, and we don't have to go, but please, Junior, here's why you need to take a bath. But we need to be careful that we don't lose our temper, because that's sin, an outburst of anger is sinful, that we are consistent, that we lovingly set up boundaries, that we don't flip out on our kids because they spilled their milk, but that by God's grace, we're learning to engage with them, to appeal to them, to encourage them. But we have two things to do. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So there's a balanced thing. Number one, those of you who haven't had kids yet, do yourself a huge favor. Start reading and thinking and training yourself to learn how to raise kids. Form a philosophy. Most of us, when your kids are little, you're writing all the books. What? Just do this. Just do this. Stop it. When they turn 18, you'll burn all those books. But many people get married and start raising kids. They have no clue. They didn't come from a Christian home. And they're like, well, this is what my old man did. He beat me with a stick, and I turned out all right. And I'm going, you need to look up the definition of all right. There are ways as parents that we are to correct our children. And the world is too full of nonsense on this. Read the book of Proverbs. The studies say, oh, if you correct and you spank your children, they're going to be wild and crazy and violent. Please stop it. The word of God is inspired by God. God gives clear instructions in the Bible about the importance of discipline. Learn them. Read shepherding a child's heart. It's not six steps to perfect kids. And parents, we need to be the first ones to get in line and say, I know I messed up. Stop doing this with your kids when they say, it's not fair. When I was that age, I wasn't allowed to do that. And we go, oh, yes, it is fair. It all works out in the end. You're right. It wasn't fair. You couldn't drive till you were 25. Jimmy's driving at 12. I get it. I just didn't feel like going to the store. We have to admit that we make mistakes. It's okay to say, you know what? I was too harsh. I was inconsistent. I was not a good example. Would you forgive me? I'm a sinner just like you are. Those of you that are raising teenagers and ready to jump, don't jump. Get the book, Age of Opportunity, and start realizing that this is a great place to engage your children with the gospel. We have Sunday school, youth group. We want to cooperate with you but we cannot replace the role of parents. So I do not expect that listening to a couple verses, you're going to go, oh, I got parenting all figured out. There are resources, mentors, people. Don't just have this chaotic, crazy home and then show up at church and go, hello, praise the Lord, and your kids are going, I see how it works. But rather be honest and say, man, I got, I got some things I need to work on.
greatest gift you can give your kids is to work on your marriage and then learn how to parent. I'm still learning. I feel so much better if I, with my grandkids. Now I get it. Problem is, they're not my kids. So as you get older, you learn a lot of mistakes you made. And you realize that, okay, I can't go back and fix them, but I can trust God and pray for my children. And I'll mark this down, and I'm going to get an amen. The Apostle John said this, there is no greater joy for a parent than when your children walk in the truth. Amen. Amen. And those of you whose kids are not obeying God right now, don't give up. Been there, seen that, prayed through it, wept through it, blame myself for it. God is gracious, but let's take parenting and family and child relationships and marriage very seriously. So I trust that this will lead to some good conversations, like on the way home, when you say to your spouse, what did God speak to you about? Do not say about how you need to do this. (laughs) What did he speak to you about what he wants you to do? And then let God take care of what he wants them to do. But remember, it's all framed in this. Christ loved us. He died for us. He washed us. And he's going to present us blameless. So in between that time, go home and do some ironing of your marriage. And get rid of some of those wrinkles. And put some spot remover on your parenting. And get rid of some of those stains. And children, get an attitude adjustment. And receive God's blessing by being obedient to your parents. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word does not leave us wondering what does it mean to be a Christian spouse or parent or child. May your word ring true to our souls. And may our repentance and obedience to the Bible be fueled by the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for our wives and our children. Forgive us for all the times that we've sinned against you in our attitude and in our actions as parents, children, and spouses. Transform us as we grow together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I hope to see many, many of you Saturday morning at our Leaders Training Growth.